you don't really follow your passion. You sort of bring it with you to whatever you're doing. And science shows that people are happy doing something that they are good at. Welcome to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom, a podcast where we provide insights, tips, and inspiration for college students and young professionals so they can make a really successful transition from college life to the professional world and beyond. My name is Andy Malinsky, and I'm your host. I'm also a professor of organizational behavior and international management at Brandeis University's International Business School, where we record and produce this podcast. Okay, so today's guest is uh, Jordan Harbinger, uh, who is a Wall Street lawyer turned interview talk show host. He's also a communications and social dynamics expert. Uh, Jordan has hosted, continues to host, a top 50 iTunes podcast for over 12 years and receives over 6 million downloads per month. That's a huge number, making The Jordan Harbinger Show one of the most popular podcasts in the world. I'm guessing that many of you have listened to it or listened to it regularly. If you haven't, you should. The, the, the show was awarded Apple's Best of 2018 and is one of the uh, most downloaded shows of the year. On The Jordan Harbinger Show, Jordan deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and shares their strategies, perspectives, and practical insights with the rest of us. Jordan spent several years abroad in Europe earlier in his career and in the developing world, including South America, Eastern Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. He speaks a number of languages. He's worked for various governments and NGOs. Lots of interesting stuff, very interesting career and career transition. So I'll stop there and I really want to hear from you. Jordan, thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. As you can hear, I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit under the weather. So this was important for me to do just because I, I love being able to speak to young people or non-young people, but people going into a career transition because I made a lot of mistakes in that area of my life early on. And I think they were, they were all pretty darn avoidable. Awesome. So uh, we'll love to hear from those, but let's, let's actually start. I mean, I, I, I basically said what you do now, but can you just, I mean, if you had to describe what you do now to someone who really doesn't know anything about what you do now, what would you say? What I do is I'm, I'm an interviewer, sort of full stop, really. I started off, of course, interviewing for a different reason and creating a podcast for a different reason. We can get into that in a little bit. But what I do is I essentially talk to people that I find interesting and get them to teach something to the listenership, the audience of The Jordan Harbinger Show. And that's, that sounds very simple because it really is. And I think a lot of people try to over... They try to complicate what it is that they do, especially in media or in the creative field, because they want to seem like they're different from everyone else. But at the end of the day, it's, since it's a personality-based business in a lot of ways, you know, if you don't like my personality, you probably won't like the show. And that's just the way it is. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I really do just find really interesting people from Dennis Quaid to Dennis Rodman, right? And find out what they know that can help someone who's listening and have an interesting conversation about that. So that's, that's super interesting. And, and I want to get into sort of um, how you got into this. But just before we do, it just pops into my mind as we're talking. What, what tips do you have for, for interviewing people well? Probably something I could learn from as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, 
everyone goes, wow, your interviews are so in-depth. You always get things that nobody else got. How do you do that? And the truth of the matter is, it's just a matter of the work ethic that goes in beforehand. So people will say, wow, you know, you have all these interesting questions that nobody else thinks of. And it's just, you're just naturally curious or whatever sort of label they put on it. But I'm not sure how true that stuff is. I mean, there's got to be some of that, right? You, you don't even, you don't do an interview talk show if you're not naturally curious at some level. But really, the so-called clever questions that I come up with a lot of the time, they're the, they're the result of spending 10 to 20 hours preparing for each interview. So if I'm interviewing Dennis Rodman, for example, I'll read his book that he wrote in the 90s. I'll watch five, six hours of his interviews on YouTube. I will try to find people that played with him and I will talk to them if I can, things like that. And if I have a scientist on the show, I'll read all of their books. I'll watch all of their TED Talks, you know, and I come up with questions based on that. I'll listen to 10 interviews they did over the course of their career. And so a lot of people will say, wow, this is the most, most in-depth interview that I've ever done. And it's not because Jordan Harbinger is so smart. It's because I've got the most input from them of their work. I've got the, the strongest footprint, uh, the strongest amount of content that they've ever created. And then I digested it and created something really useful out of that. Because of course, when I'm listening or watching to their, to their stuff or anything they've created before or has been created about them before, I am taking notes, right? I'm taking notes. I put them all in a Google Doc and then I go through the notes later and I essentially ask myself questions about the notes that I have. So in a way, it's a lot like studying for a test. If the test was something that you were really, really interested in, and there was no grade. So that's kind of the way that I look at it is I have to know, I have to have a, a degree in this person, right? I've got to be an expert on this particular individual. And my, the test is, can I, can I hold a conversation with them for an hour, hour and a half? That would be the kind of conversation they would have with a really close friend, right? And if I can do that, then, uh, then I do well. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so interesting. And, and as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, imagining you in college. And I know from reading your bio and doing a bit of research about you, you didn't launch this right after college, right? So tell us a bit about your college experience, where you went to college, what you majored in. And then, you know, what was that experience like leaving college and going to the professional world? Yeah, well, I didn't launch it right after college because podcasts didn't exist <laughs> to just to just to make me look even older uh, than I mean. I'm 39. I'm not that old, but I assume people listening to this are in their early 20s mostly. So when I was in college, nothing quite fit for me there either because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I quote unquote grew up, and I think that's pretty normal. I think a lot of people have no idea what they want to do. And, and I don't even think that you're supposed to know that. I do think it's really tempting for people to beat themselves up about that. I think a lot of people want to, to think that everyone in college should know what they want to do. And I don't really know where that notion came from. That might be like my parents' generation where they go to college because they want to become an engineer or something along those lines. And that's just, uh, that's just not the case anymore. People go to college because they don't know what else to do with themselves. And I was definitely in that bucket. I mean, sure, if you're in college because you already know what you want to do, that's a huge advantage. Good for you. I'm jealous. I went because that's what you did after high school. 
And in college, nothing quite fit for me. So I started taking languages and, and other things like that because I already knew German pretty well, having been an exchange student in Germany in the late 90s. So I took German because I could do well there. And it was like, all right, I'm going to get A's in this. So that's going to round out my GPA a little bit. And then I, I found that every degree, and I don't know why you professors do this, Andy, but every degree has these, I think we call them like weeder courses. I don't know if this rings a bell at all. They're just these super difficult classes that are designed to make sure that if you wanted to be an accountant or go to business school, that you were going to hate every second of this class. And it involved complex math and it was on a curve and they were huge courses and everyone hired a tutor and then like just scraped by with a B minus or something like that. Just barely got through it. Made your semester a living hell because you had 10 hours of homework every day. It was just terrible. And I realized that these were kind of a trap and they were designed to get people out of certain majors who quote unquote didn't belong there. And I didn't like that idea. And I thought there's got to be a way around this especially around things like math requirements for people who want to go into business. Because I knew from my entrepreneur friends and business owner friends that I, I only had a few at the time. I was like, they don't use any of this stuff. And so I went to my advisor and I said, look, I want to study different things like languages, but I don't want to be a German major because that's ridiculous. I don't want to, have, I don't want to write a thesis on Faust, but I want to learn... German, Serbian, Spanish, uh, Russian, or something like that, and tie it all together with economics and pol political science. And there's just nothing to, no way to do that. And he said, actually, every year there's about five or 10 at the most people who create their own degree. And you have to petition the academic standards board or something like that. I can't remember now uh, about doing this, but it, so it's a huge pain, but it's doable. And I think you have a good shot at doing it because the, the people they don't want to do that are people who are just going to choose the same degree as everyone else, but just cut out all the hard classes. But if you do something really unique, especially languages, because nobody does it in languages, you know, you can, you have a good chance at getting approved. And I said, great, where do, let, let's do this. So I, I created my own degree based on several languages, political science courses and economics. And I, it was called Integrated International Commerce, which was very fancy sounding. And that was by design. But I wanted to do something where it was like, all right, I'm going to study the political climate, the cultural climate, economic climate, and of course, the language of several target countries that are now entering the world economy. So Spanish was in there because of South America, sort of, sort of like the uh, that large... It's not a country, as you know, but it's just a large economic zone. Russian, Russian and Russia was a hot topic in 2003 because they were just sort of coming out of their malaise. And then I, I had a couple of other smaller languages in there that I, that I wanted to sort of pepper in there. But I've really focused on those two, those two languages and then economics and political science. And it was great because I got a chance to... And this is what I think college largely should be. I don't know if you agree. I got to study what I was interested in. And I got to go in depth on those things, but I didn't have to make myself miserable taking these weeder courses or like knocking down math requirements that were for certain majors. Like for an econ major, you had to know all this advanced calculus at the University of Michigan, which kind of makes no sense because if you're not doing economic models, and even if you are, frankly, you don't need to be able to do this stuff on paper. So 
it was actually a really useful degree for me, and it was it was really interesting. How did, so so that is interesting, and it's interesting to me as you sort of fast forward to what you do now. You know, you crafted your own major. You cra- you're crafting your own career, really. So you maybe you're a crafter. You yeah. Know? Good uh, point. Yeah. So 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 then so then so then you, you you came out of school with this degree. I know you went to law school at some point. Can you give us a sense of how that progressed, how you got into law, and then how you left the law? <laughs> sure. So this is another. Ca- this is just another case of, gee, I need to go get more education because I don't know what else to do. And so I, w- I wouldn't say that's why I went to college. It is one of the reasons I went to college because it was the thing you're supposed to do. But for grad school, after college, I went to the University of Michigan, right? So I, had, at that point, was fluent in German, Spanish. Uh, I had started learning Russian. I'd lived in like nine countries for an extended period of time. And I thought I was pretty qualified to start learning something, at least career-wise. So I started doing that. Uh, I started interviewing at places for that, I should say, without a hell of a lot of luck. And I got up one day and I was like, all right, I need to go to Best Buy because um, I've got like, I don't know, I needed a new disc man or something to sort of put a date on this thing, right? And I walk in there and my friend's like, hey, we're hiring, you know, if you don't know what you're going to do for the summer. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I, I literally took a job interview right there. And they're like... All right, well, you can put computers at the time I could build computers by hand. And I had already done it. And I was great at taking viruses off people's machines and all this stuff. So I had done a bunch of computer service and I thought, I'm gonna do this at Best Buy. And they're like, No, 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 no. You get promoted into computer repair. You get promoted into customer service. You've got to start off in music. That's where we need you. And I was like, music? Is at the time there was a 17 year old kid working in music who was like my college buddy's little brother. And I thought, that guy's going to be my boss. And I'm 24 with a degree from Michigan that I created to speak three or four languages fluently at that point. What are you talking about? Music. Like, I, I'm not standing in front of a life size cutout of Britney Spears for the next two years so that I can get promoted into another job that I'm overqualified to do, in, in my opinion, right? And so that was just not happening. So I was like, no thanks. So I applied to grad school and I applied to law school. And I ended up getting into the University of Michigan Law School, which is at the time and still is, I think it was, it's one of the top 10 best law schools in America. And so everyone said, well, if you got into Michigan, you have to go because this will basically make your career. You know, you can write your own ticket when you go to a school like that. So I said, great. More education is definitely the solution to this problem. You know, and, and that is not true at all uh, now. And it's not, it wasn't true then either. But I think it's a forgivable misconception because if you think, well, if I'm not qualified to repair computers at Best Buy, it must be because I don't have enough education. Forget the fact that they literally said everybody who works in customer service and computer repair has three to four years of experience working at Best Buy. I mean, that was the excuse given. But I thought, well, if I get a law degree, I can do a lot of different things that don't involve selling CDs. And so that's why I went to law school. Yeah, it's interesting. It's As I'm listening to your career, it's almost like, you know, you're like, you're prepping yourself credential wise for some future possibility that you're not quite clear on. <laughs> you know, right. It sounds like. And, and, and then if, if schooling is the solution, 
what's the problem? Is the problem how to get a prestigious career? Is the problem how to figure out what really is your passion? I imagine going to law school didn't help you figure that out. It sounds from your career progression. Right. You know, it's funny because you don't actually learn, or I should say, I didn't actually learn anything about what I would be passionate about. You know, I just sort of went to school thinking like, well, you go to school and then at some point during this experience, and it didn't happen in the first four years, but at some point during this experience, you get struck by lightning and you go, this is my passion and this is what I was born to do. And this is what I... But that doesn't happen. And that freaks a lot of people out. It certainly scared me because I thought, "Uh uh-oh, if I'm not going to find my passion here, then what am I going to do? And so I was like, okay, well, if I go to law school, maybe I'll find it. And then, of course, law school starts and I go, this is interesting, but I wouldn't say I'm extremely passionate about it. Many people here already seem to be. So what am I going to do? And then I want, you know, if I just get this going and then I'm a lawyer for like four years and pay off my student loans, haha, right? Four years. Um, That's a joke now, but (laughs) back then I thought I could probably do it. Then I'll have four years of experience. Then I can. It's just more time that I'll have to discover what I want to do. But at least I'll be making six figures in the meantime, which is helpful when you've got student loans and you don't know what you're going to do. And da da da. So who knows? Maybe I'll be a diplomat or something. You know. And all of that also made sense. So in a way, getting more education, especially something like a law degree, especially at that time, it wasn't a bad idea, but it was just. I wasn't counting opportunity cost of losing all that time. I wasn't counting the amount of tuition as as any sort of opportunity cost. I was just thinking, well, this is like the only option that's really laid out for me that seems clear. And that's that's pretty that's not good. Did you know going in that you did you have an inkling that you might not like it? I mean, it's possible that you you know, in the story you're telling that you you had a hunch you might like it, and then it turned out you didn't love it, which is under, you know, unfortunate, but understandable. Yeah, you know, I thought law school was pretty cool because you're hanging out with smart people all the time, and you can't, I mean, you can't beat that, right? That, that's, that's a fun environment to be in for a lot of people. In fact, it was more fun for me than it was for most people because I, at, at Michigan anyway, your grade was 100% your final exam, which for many people was terrifying. And it was for me for the first semester as well. But I realized, well, wait a minute. I'm not trying to be a Supreme Court justice, so I don't need to get all A's. I'm not trying to be a law professor, so I don't need all A's. I literally just need to pass. That's all I need to do. And I don't have to pass every class. I just have to pass law school. So that was pretty cool for me. I went in there going like, however I do is however I do. And I worked really hard. And I joined a study group with really smart kids so they could teach me stuff before the exam. I mean, that's how I, that's how I survived there. But I graduated and I think the top half or the top third even of my class. And I took a top market job on Wall Street. And it, it wasn't bad. You know, it, it really wasn't bad. You're an overpaid secretary for your first and second year as an associate. So... But it wasn't something where I was like, this is phenomenal. You know, I was jealous of people who had a career plan. I was jealous of the older guys at the firm who seemed really interested in financial derivatives. And they were going, and this is the cool part. We 
securitize these subprime mortgages into these different packages. And then the bank, our client, sells them. And I'm just thinking, who cares? We're not doing anything. Nothing is getting built because of this. We're like moving papers around and legal structures. I mean, it was really just like, talk about not accomplishing much of anything. Securitizing subprime mortgages, which later caused the financial meltdown of 2008, was hardly something to get excited about. And so that for me was not too... I wasn't too keen on that. However, after my first internship, my first summer associate gig in law school between... Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Before, but my, after my first summer in law school, uh, or first year of law school, I went in the summer, I didn't try to take a law job. I applied for a government grant, uh, which is like kind of a Fulbright situation. Uh, if you don't know what a Fulbright is, it is you get you basically, I got a government grant to go abroad and study. And so I spent that summer in Serbia, where I had spent some time before. Uh, before law school, because I had a gap year. Uh, I'd spent some time before there, and I spent some time in Serbia learning Serbian, and it was great. And the government sort of paid for it. Department of Defense sort of paid for that. And then I came back out. Second summer, I had already taken a law job, and I, I came back and I went, oh my gosh, I am not cut out for this law stuff. You know, I'm not going to be a lawyer for long, but everybody here is really smart, Everybody works really hard, but nobody knows how to network or, or has any people skills. Not many people at this firm. So I'm going to learn how to generate business for this law firm. And if I learn how to generate business for this law firm, then I can become a partner and nobody will care that I'm not like a genius level legal brief drafter, whatever. You know, I'll develop a skill that a lot of these people don't have. And that'll give me another competitive advantage. Because in high school, my competitive advantage was like, teach myself the geometry the day, the day of the test at lunch. The, uh, the other competitive advantage that I had in college and law school was everybody's drinking every day. So if I just do my homework and show up to class and, and outwork everyone, I'm good. But when I got to Wall Street, it was like everyone was smart. Everyone was working hard. So I thought my new competitive advantage is going to be that I know how to network and bring in business. So I started studying psychology and started taking sales courses and things like that. And that was the beginning of the career that I have now because I realized, wait a second, these people skills, these psychology skills, these are, there's something really big going on here. And this is an area that I, I'm obsessed with. I love the psychology and I, lo- I love thinking of the way the human mind works and how we can sort of utilize that to our advantage. So I started talking about that stuff nonstop. I was kind of annoying, I think, because I was so passionate about it. I just couldn't shut up. I should have gotten like a PhD in this. But I, I instead started talking about it. Then I started teaching it to other law students. I started teaching networking. And, and most people didn't care, but there were, a, there were a group of women that really did care. And they happened to be quite attractive. So I would hang out with them like every day and teach them body language and nonverbal communication and things like that. And then a bunch of my guy friends who didn't care at all about networking before, they then were like, hey, what are you doing every day going out with them? Like, uh, can I come? And I'd be like, yeah, but I'm teaching networking and body language stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, I I should learn that. So then this group sort of grew. I, I had an informal course going and I got sick of having the same conversation every day when new people showed up. So I started recording the conversations, burning them to CDs, 
and handing the CDs out to new people. And I'd say, go home and listen to this 10 hours of stuff I've talked about before. And then you can join our conversations because you'll have a, a background. And people started taking the CDs and saying things like, oh, I listened to it all. And then my roommate heard it and he wants it. And then I gave this one to my brother. And I can I have another one? Can I have another one? So I started selling the CDs for like 20 bucks. And then people were like, great, I need eight. I need eight CDs. So I started burning these CDs and I realized, well, I have this sort of business here selling this information, but it's, it's 20 bucks at a time is not going to make me rich. So I, I really realized I need a way to distribute these sound files on the internet. And this is 2006. There was no way to distribute sound files on the internet, which is hilarious. So that's what I was doing. I was distributing these CDs and trying to figure out how to upload this. And then one day my friend goes, hey, there's this thing called, called podcasting. And you can upload the sound file to iTunes and people can download iTunes for their computer and play it there. There was no iPhone at the time, nothing. There was no smartphone. I can't believe it. Now, to talk about feeling old, there was no smartphone. So we did it. We uploaded it to iTunes and we thought, all right, now we can tell people that we meet to go download these files and they can because every college kid had iTunes. It's like every college kid has Spotify now, probably. So we started doing that and that was what took off. The show, the show took off and we started seeing downloads from places like South Africa. And I was like, oh, that must be a mistake because everybody who knows about this should be in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they weren't. And that's when I sort of realized the power of podcasting. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's something here that is beyond what we had imagined. And that was, that was when I got the taste of, of something I was really passionate about and that I was really interested in. And I just dove in head first. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And, and I want to I wanna ask you a couple of questions you know, from, from this point on in your story as well. But I do want to rewind for one sec. Um, and you said something really interesting before that I thought was interesting about the idea of your competitive advantage. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a term you often apply to businesses when you think about strategy, like doing a SWOT analysis, if you're familiar with business, but a competitive advantage. And you talked about your competitive advantage. I think you said in, in high school, it was that you could learn geometry at lunchtime um, I think you said in law school it was that you weren't like getting drunk and staying out all night and working hard, and, and you did work hard and those things sort of set you apart. That was your competitive advantage. And then it sounds like in your first job, you you saw your competitive advantage is um, is is starting to develop some expertise around around building business, which is not something that a lot of lawyers necessarily come to very easily. M- my question for you is um, is First of all, was this idea of competitive advantage something that you're sort of retrospectively um, making sense of as you think about your story? Or is it something that you proactively, prospectively thought about as you were going on your journey? That's my first question. And then the second question is, is how does one find their competitive advantage? What advice might you give someone listening uh, if they'd like to notice their own competitive advantage? So my competitive advantage idea, that really was something, looking back at it now, I think I didn't really notice in the moment. You know, it was sort of 2020 hindsight. I did notice that, I noticed the fact that, all right, I'm able to teach myself the geometry on the quiz in high school and then college, everybody else is really smart. So I have to outwork them. But I wasn't thinking in terms of competitive advantages. 
And then when I started learning about the networking thing, I, I remember thinking, if I'm going to try to compete with people here, I have to get better at something that they're not good at. So I guess I was thinking competitive advantage, but I, w- I wasn't really using that term. It wasn't really... It really wasn't something I was thinking about in, in, that, those kind of, in those kind of terms, if that makes sense. So... Yeah, that does. Yeah. So, so that was something that came up. I don't even think I was familiar much with the term until economics in college, really. Uh, but even then, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of people. But of course, you should be thinking that for sure. Okay, so I, what I noticed from what you're saying is that, I mean, you can have a competitive advantage, but, but what if you have a competitive advantage in something, but you're not passionate about it? Like, for example, you could have said in, as a lawyer that you have this competitive advantage in terms of social skills, but you don't really care that much about it. It's not like your passion necessarily. You love right. writing the briefs, but the social skills, which you're awesome at, you're not so excited about. You know, I imagine if I don't want to put words in your mouth that the real key to building a interesting career uh, where you can succeed and feel deeply engaged in what you're doing is to kind of marry that sense of competitive advantage with passion. Well, yeah, but I think yes, that's true. However, you build both of those things, right? You don't necessarily. Most of us, anyway, are not going to wake up and be like, "Oh, I'm passionate about this," so. I'm I'm gonna make that my career, and you know that's that's always nice if you can do it, but it's not necessary. You know you don't you don't really follow your passion; you sort of bring it with you to whatever you're doing. And we, science shows that people are happy doing something that they are good at. So there are people that are really good at uh, a friend of mine's really good at removing beehives from structures from people's houses or from commercial buildings and things like that. He loves this job. But I don't think when he was young, he was like, I want to remove bees from homes. But he loves this job. And he's, he works seven days a week and he, he makes a ton of money doing it and he really enjoys it. And he'll, he'll post pictures on Instagram of stuff that he's doing. He's like, look at all the bees that were stuck in this guy's garage wall. Unbelievable. And then he'll be like, also, I'm, you know, I'll sell you the bees. And then he'll, after work, he'll come over to my wife's, uh, my brother-in-law's house. My wife has beehive, uh, beehives in the backyard. And he'll bring new bees over or he'll come over and help maintain those hives. So he really loves beekeeping, but he started off as like an exterminator. You know, he, he was like, this is a job I need because I need to pay for necessities in life. And, it, and he was poisoning all these insects. And he's like, you know, I bet I could take these out of here safely. I heard bees are good for the environment. And then he started maintaining the bees at his own house because he had no place to put the bees he took. So then he liked beekeeping, right? And then he's like, oh, I can just get free bees because people are going to want me to take them out of their house or their garage. And then he really started enjoying that too. So he, he found his passion and started bringing his passion with him because he was already really good at insect removal. And, and I know a lot of people are probably like rolling their eyes, but that's not so different from my career path, right? I started doing the legal thing realized I had no competitive advantage, needed to try something else, decided to work on my social skills or whatever so that I could bring in business. That was what was interesting for me. I started getting really into that. Realized, well, all right, I can teach this. Maybe, and then realized I don't really love the teaching element. I like the interview and talk show hosting element. And then over time, that evolved into me becoming an interviewer and you know, dot, dot, dot. I've got a list celebrities on the Jordan Harbinger show, along with scientists. 
and I have interesting conversations for a living. But that, that took a lot of time. I mean, I'm in year 13 of doing this show. And for someone, and, and as we're talking, I'm thinking about the advice we could give to someone who's, who's sort of in a job that might be a first job, a second job they don't love. I mean, it sounds like the advice is not put your head down, have tunnel vision, try to be as absolutely as successful and effective as you can at that job and think of nothing else. Because it sounds like when you, you know, your exterminator friend and you were kind of, I don't know, self-reflective, curious, you had, you know, I don't know, you performed some thought experiments, some real experiments, like, hey, what would it be like if we did a little social skills group? I mean, you know, what advice do you give to someone um, about sort of leveraging the experience of their current job for potential better future jobs? Sure. I would look at, first of all, I know this is sort of a cliche, but you have to be open to the idea that what you think you want to do might not be what you end up wanting to do. And this is actually, it's not limiting. This is actually, this should liberate you because a lot of the people who thought, I really want to be a lawyer. It's going to be great. My dad was a lawyer and you know, lawyers make a lot of money. Those are some of the people who held on the longest. And they're some of the people that now, you know, in our push, we're pushing 40 are like, I can't believe I still do this. I'm looking for another job. Or they do a legal job at a company and they're like, I really, you know, this isn't my passion. I'll tell you that. I'm not, I don't love it, but it pays the bills. Like those are the people that tend to be, have the longest, the largest amount of dissatisfaction because they're really glued to the idea that they're supposed to like this particular thing. And that's not healthy. So for me, I was very open to everything. And so, and I wasn't really hooked on, I need to be a lawyer, I need to be a corporate lawyer, I need to impress my friends and family, that kind of stuff. That wasn't a concern for me. So you need to learn how to, how to figure this stuff out so that you're not glued in. And also avoid things like the golden handcuffs. Because, and what this is, is a lot of lawyers have this. It's you become a lawyer and you realize, oh, well, all right, I'm making a lot of money, but I don't love this. Oh, I'll, I'll have a better life if I buy a house in Nantucket and go there on the weekends because that's what everyone does. They get out of the city, they go to this summer home uh, a lot more in the summer, of course, and then in, in long weekends, they go to Nantucket or whatever, the Hamptons, whatever it is, and they live there. Well, that's expensive. And then they're like, oh, well, I got to get a boat because everyone has a boat at their summer home. So, you know, they want to do that. And then they got to send their kids to a private school because they live in Manhattan. And that's where all the other lawyers are sending their kids. So they have all these bills. And then when the time comes and they get a job offer or possibly an opportunity to go work for something that they care about, they're like, I can't leave. I can't take a pay cut. I'm barely, I'm paycheck to paycheck, even though they're making $30,000 a month, right? It's crazy. So you have to be very careful here. You have to be very, very careful here. Uh, Otherwise, you can end up stuck in a way that's really going to screw up your life. And so it's not just leveraging experience from one job to another. It's making sure that you have the freedom in place to move. That's where the biggest problem is. It's not just like, oh, how do I figure out what my next move is? You figure that out by keeping an open mind and realizing that your career is not a set it and forget it, but it's an evolving pathway. A lot of people, especially when I was in college, I didn't realize this. I thought you got a job and you stayed there. That's not the case anymore. That might be really obvious to these students now, but it wasn't when I was... I came about... I came up in the time when 
our parents had worked for Ford or a public school district for 30 years and then done. Now people switch jobs every four years. So it might be really obvious now, or maybe people are still under the delusion that they're going to get a job in one career and stay there. So you got to realize that, that it's an evolving process. It's an evolving path and it, change is supposed to happen. But you have to be ready for change. And that's going to be a competitive advantage that you have. If you don't have a ton of bills and you've paid off your student loans, you have freedom that other people do not have because you can move. You can work at uh, a law firm for a while and then join a startup for half the price, uh, or half the uh, pay, but equity in a company that you think is a rocket ship. That's how people call in rich when they're 45, right? They, they, they do something like this. And so you have to be able to do that. Because if you can't do that, because your loans aren't paid off and you have a boat and a house, you're not going to be able to move around. You're going to get stuck and you're going to have less satisfaction as a result. So um, as I hear this, I think of the student who, um, or the young professional was a student who didn't have sort of the um, initiative to create his own major in college like you did, or maybe who... Um, is a bit anxious about stepping outside his or her comfort zone or um, is, you know, he does care about impressing family and friends with, you know, the typical conventional achievements and markers of success in a profession, but at the same time is dissatisfied and doesn't have their passion. You've been able to pivot and create a very interesting craft, really a very interesting career for yourself you know, what advice would you give to that person? So th- they didn't have the initiative to create their own degree. And then what was the second part of that? Well, they're just someone who, um, who doesn't seem to have the fluidity that you describe mm-hmm. that's been critical to your career. The ability to be able to, you know, well, as you talk about the advice of shedding, shedding, um, shedding your expenses in some ways, becoming, you know, flexible to be able to pivot to, um, notice in a job what, um, what they like, what they don't like, and then start to experiment with things that might enable them to transition and so on and so forth. There's a lot of fluidity, creativity, craft, craftiness in, in, in proactiveness in your story, but not everyone's like that. What advice would you give to someone who sort of doesn't necessarily innately have those qualities, but still wants to build a meaningful career. Sure. I mean, this isn't, there's nothing sort of, yes, I definitely was crafty in terms of making my own degree and things like that and studying abroad and getting grants and all that stuff. But none of that requires any sort of genius level of craftiness. What you really need to look for are opportunities that are not what everyone else is doing. That's all I was doing. I, was, I would ask around and say, is there any scenario in which I can study economics and political science, but I don't have to do all the classes that I'm, I'm dreading. Is there a way for me to make my own path? And that was what prompted the, the idea that I can create my own degree. That was what prompted the idea that I can craft my own way. And as for having freedom and, and being able to sort of leave situations that I'm not interested in because I have that freedom... You can build freedom. Just pay. It's really as simple as don't take on a bunch of extra expenses thinking they'll make you happy because they won't. So rent your home. Don't buy one if you're not sure of where you're going to live yet. Don't buy a summer house and don't buy a boat. Spend that money on your student loans and pay them off 10 years before everyone else. I paid my student loans off 
in my mid-30s. And I had $168,000 in student loans. So because I had undergrad at Michigan and then law school at Michigan. So I focused heavily. I mean, I was, I think my student loan bill was like a few hundred bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month. I remember putting some months, I put like $12,000 towards my loans. So I would spend like my entire paycheck, you know, after taxes paying off my student loans. I did that regularly. So that, that was great. And then I eventually had student loans. My, and you pay off your highest interest loans, right? If you have a loan that's at 3.1 and you're getting your savings account is giving you 3.8 in interest, don't pay off that loan. Pay the minimum amount. But if you've got a loan that's 5%, pay that thing off immediately. Pay it off as quickly as you can. Even in hell, if you're really stuck, borrow money from family and friends if you have that option and pay that loan off and then pay that money back to your family and friends at a, a low or no interest for those of you that have that kind of opportunity. I did not have that opportunity, but a lot of people do. Spend that, spend it on that. Don't necessarily, you don't need to buy a house in the Hamptons, you know, first, or you don't need to buy a really cool car. None of that is required. That limits your freedom. Being debt free is freedom for you. And if you can get that freedom in your 20s, early 30s, then when you get that job offer for something else that seems random and spontaneous, you can actually take it because you're, you, the amount of money you need to live is lowered by the amount of, of your loan payment that you no longer have. So you don't have to be crafty. You just have to, you have to shed uh, weight. And it's really not that hard to do because when you're in your 20s and 30s, the only weight you have is the weight you've voluntarily taken on yourself and your student loans. So if you've got your student loans, which many of us didn't have a choice about taking, pay those off and don't take on additional weight. Don't spend money on your credit card and then try to pay the balance off later. You know, Keep a zero balance. These are really, really easy and practical things. Don't buy a house. Don't buy a car if you can get away with it. Don't spend money you don't have. It's really simple. That's how you stay free. That's how you get free. Yeah. Set yourself up for, for that opportunity when it comes along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not about finding magical opportunities. It's, it's, I mean, of course you have to do that, but you're going you're gonna to see a lot of opportunity that other people won't see because they think, I can't make less than $12,000 a month. How would I survive? And you're going, hmm, I need $2,800 a month to survive. Right? Because you, you paid off all your loans. So now you can take a 50% pay cut and you're like, well, bummer, my savings goals are a little, I'm a little behind on that, but not the end of the world. The rest of what you have is freedom. Yeah. Interesting. Very wise advice. And a lot of people don't think that way, but I, li- I, I like that. Um, we're, we're, we, you've, you've given us so much and, and we're really at the end here. And I, I really thank you for coming on. Um, I, think, I think people get a lot, of, a lot out of what you've said. And I do want to direct them to, to hear your show or any, anywhere that you'd like them to go. So where can people find out more about you and what you do? Sure. I host the Jordan Harbinger Show. It's a, a talk show. I give advice every Friday, but I have two interviews a week with really interesting people, or at least in my opinion, really interesting from Dennis Quaid to Dennis Rodman to scientists and, and other really, honestly, great thinkers. And that's what will help you spot opportunity as well. Learning how to think is a, is a great skill that you can never be too good at. And that's really what the show is about, making you a better thinker. So if you enjoyed this at all, and you think there's any sort of wise advice here that you might apply check out the Jordan Harbinger show anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can also check me out at uh, jordanharbinger.com. And I'm at Jordan Harbinger on all social media. 
Awesome. And I would strongly recommend the show as well. And we'll have the link in the show notes. So thank you so much again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom. If you're interested in learning more about the work that I do and helping people step outside their comfort zones and transition successfully into the professional world, please visit my website, www.andymolinsky.com. That's A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And also feel free to email me directly at andy at andymolinsky.com with any feedback or ideas for guests for future podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Brandeis University's International Business School. By teaching rigorous business, finance, and economics, connecting students to best practices and immersing them in international experiences, Brandeis International Business School prepares exceptional individuals from around the globe to become principled professionals in companies and public institutions worldwide. Thank you so much for listening.